welcome to episode three of the Creators Podcast. Uh, my name's Richard Beatty, and this is Doug Sanders, a very old friend. Um, we met a long time ago through interesting circumstances, and uh, I mentioned Doug in, in, in episode one because uh, this is the guy that helped us with my anxiety. Um, so uh, we've had a, a, a fascinating friendship, and I've uh, watched all the amazing things that he does. Um, he just never ceases to uh, to amaze us. Um, so, yeah, it's a it's it's a privilege to be able to get you on here and um, show the world what you do because um, you're hidden away in a in a tranquil, tiny little place. And I, I think that you just uh, yeah that you you want a Southwest Scot- Scotland's best kept secrets. Well, thank you, mate. That's very kind. Yeah, so um, Doug, where did it all begin for you? Where did it all start? <laughs> where I was born, <laughs> which is a, which is a place called Orley was in Staffordshire near Lichfield. I was born in a small village, Thatch Village, in a Thatch cottage. Yeah. Uh, to my mum and dad, Delise and Roger Sanders. Uh, my dad was a watchmaker and cabinet maker and then moved on to become a times and motion person. He was obsessed with clocks, basically. Anything to do with time, time and history. Uh, My mum was a stay-at-home mum, but she was a full-time artist, and she did more things than I do. Right. And we were, as children, I've got my sister, Heather and Roe. Heather's five years older than me, and rose two years younger and we were brought into everything that mum did so whether it was I mean as a kid we were taught to spin uh, use a loom pottery I mean by the age of seven or eight I could turn a pot on a potter's wheel wow um it covered everything from cooking to not just making bread but grinding the flour collecting the the seed you know, mum would go into great detail. That's where I get the detail part from. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, and if we were fascinated, we could go as deep into it as we wanted. And mum took us on a journey with her, really, which was amazing, which is incredible. So she, like, she studied philosophy. Uh, she studied uh, all sorts of different religions. And she would teach us about them. But there were very, my parents were very open-minded, not Christian-based. Uh, they would look at, any religion and right from a young age they gave us they said to us you choose what you believe in which is quite amazing really so there was no bias at all so I, I tried Methodist church I went to the local church you know I did all these things but she would also read things to us and because from a young age I had a trouble with um recognizing not numbers but letters not knowing what dyslexia was then because it wasn't a thing Uh, She would read to me and she'd read me books on philosophy. And at the age of, I think I was about seven years old when she read read me a book called, it's probably the most important thing I didn't read, but she read to me. And it was called The Education of a Child by Hazrat Inyat Khan. I hope I pronounced it right. It was a Sufi uh, teacher and it was about the journey of life from birth to death and every stage in between. And she read it to me several times because I was fascinated at a young age in the mind. I could see what she saw in it. And really, that what I learned from that book, the most interesting thing I learned from that book was that there is only now, this moment in time, which sounds like a bit of a cliche now, but then people didn't talk about that sort of thing. 
And so what you were ever doing at that second in time, breathing, walking, creating something, that's the only thing there is. There's nothing else. So that follows through to now, right through my life. It stayed there as a true all the way through. Some things you believe, you know, you can change. Your, as I say, always stay flexible. You might change your mind tomorrow. But with that, that's just gone straight down the line of my timeline, my whole life. And it's worked for me. I would say it's worked for me. So I would apply that to to a lot of things I did as a child, which was some of them were quite strange. I'd sit in a tree, for instance, like I had an old poplar tree and I would sit in it and I wanted to know, I wanted to connect with, this sounds weird, I wanted to connect with the grass. I wanted to connect with the sky and I wanted, because I felt like I was part of those things and I wanted to understand the molecules and how everything grew, what they were made of. So this fascination for the mind, but also for everything else around me, for instance, electronics. When I was a kid, you know, you you used to have TV repairmen come into the house. It was a regular thing to replace tubes in your telly and stuff. Well, I used to sit behind the guy and watch him. And this was, I'm going to guess about seven or eight. Again, quite young. And I'd watch him and he'd tell me about what he was doing. He was a lovely old man. And he told me that if you touched the middle of the tube, there was a static shock and it could kill you. So I knew that you didn't go near that. The telly broke down one day and the TV man was repair, repairman was called out. But before he got there, I got into the back of the telly and repaired it. Now, my dad was fuming, although I'd repaired it. My mum was just aghast at how I'd repaired it. And to this day, I can't remember what I did. I probably wiggled something or I can't remember what I did, but I repaired the television anyway. So then the fascination grew. So I started taking radios apart, putting them back together and anything I could get my hands on. It could be a watch, repairing a watch. I just wanted to know how it worked, why it did what it did. Yeah. I wasn't satisfied with just reading about it. With being dyslexic, I wanted to physically see it. So that, that runs through everything in my life, really, Rich. Yeah. Absolutely. And so what did school go like for you then, being dyslexic? Well, for, for, I talk about seven or eight quite a lot because up until eight years old, for me, life was golden and rosy. Yeah. And I thought I was, as far as his family was concerned, I was the best thing since sliced bread. We weren't a rich family. We were quite a poor family. My dad worked, my mum didn't. We were living in this beautiful thatched cottage and we had a lovely life. It was a beautiful life, really. Mm-hmm. Um, no trauma really, to speak of. And school was good. I I wrote a lot of poetry. Uh, I did a lot of art. And then I got to eight years old and things started to shift slightly. I got moved onto a table for special reading. And then uh, one that stands out is, I I used to do a lot of watercolour painting at that age. And I did did a painting of, uh, for a competition, of, there's a lot of barges and canals in Orleans that network through the village. Mm. And I did a painting of a barge with the reflection in the water and the scenery. And I put it into the competition and they chucked it out. They said I cheated. Uh, and a, a lad one who'd done a crayon drawing of a duck, I think. Mm. And they, said they wouldn't believe me. My mum had to go to the school and said he did this painting on his own at the side of the canal. But they still wouldn't accept it. They wow. said it was not a child's painter. So there was my first disappointment. It's like, this is unjust. This isn't true. Yeah. And I didn't know what unjust was really then. I didn't, I'd, I'd never experienced it. So then fast forward to when I moved to secondary school and we're sat in the hall 
they decide which class you go into, you're told which, you know, form you'll be in, blah, blah, blah. And the hall gradually emptied to the point there was only six or seven people left in the hall. And I was sat in there thinking, what's happening? And it was the last class to be called, which was 13B, which was the remedial class. And I didn't even know what that was. I wasn't expecting this. I just thought it was like all the other kids. So I went to this class where the tables were smaller and the work we did was the same as it was at junior school. But that's not how I felt inside. I thought there's something wrong. So my mum again went to the school and eventually what came out of it, very clever teacher who was a remedial teacher, um, Mr. Hayton, I think his name was, dead and gone now bless him but he was a good guy and he found out about dyslexia and he got an early test for it and he brought it in and this is how they found out I was dyslexic not like the other children because I was functioning perfectly well but I couldn't I couldn't read properly I couldn't spell properly because I couldn't see it's a word blindness it's Mm. not number blindness I've got it's word blindness it's a memory loss Mm. I can forget how to spell my own name So they gave me these tests with ink blots and stuff, as you you know, and a writing test, a reading test. And then he got me to throw a ball, which I did with my left hand, because I'm left-handed as well, and then kick a ball, which I did with my right leg. And he said, that's wrong. What do you mean it's wrong? He says, well, you're using both halves of your brain. You're using both hemispheres of your brain at the same time. One's dominant, but this is dominant also. So I've always been slightly ambidextrous with that, as a lot of left-handed people are. Uh, but through that, anyway. Class- well, by the way, so like that's uh, me left-handed, episode two, Stu left-handed, episode three, you left-handed. I think we need to do a running <laughs> survey on this. I'm going to ask everybody now what handed they are, because yeah. this is a huge part of it isn't it how our brains are actually working and you know this is what i want to get into too with this. well absolutely in teaching art we i used to teach people that um to to draw with the opposite hand blindfolded basically with their eyes shut to draw their opposite hand with the non-dominant hand and of course the left brain right brain process you're trying to shut down the left logical side and open up the creative right side which is opposites of course uh, which which works amazingly well it's a good exercise to do uh, i can fast or fast forward through school quite quickly i had i had good friends i was very popular all my friends in the school that i hung around with were in the top stream i didn't hang around with the kids in the class I was with. I didn't socialise with them. Not on purpose, I just didn't. And I managed to work my way through school, basically work very, very hard as best I could, not being given any allowances then for dyslexia at all. And I moved up several streams and I managed to come out with three O-levels out of school before I left at the age of 16. I'd already started work. Mm-hmm. So from 16, if I jump backwards to 11, <laughs> Our house was, as I said, was the cottage, cobweb cottages thatched. Mm. And a guy used to come from Derbyshire and do repairs on the roof, a lovely old man named George Meller, who was known as the father of thatching. And he'd come with his team and he'd work on the roof. And I was always fascinated by his work. It looks, I don't know, there was something golden about the thatch and the softness of it. It was very summery feeling, as you know, as you'd imagine. Yeah. And when I was 11, he was working down the road on a house. And basically I went down and asked for a job at the age of 11 and from that day on I started working with him in every all the spare time I had I'd cycle to wherever he was and go and work and be allowed on the roof and I was treated like a man Mm. I was treated like a man at the age of 11 Mm. 
which was quite amazing. I also did a lot. Of, I was driven to work as a kid and I, I used to race push bikes and I wanted to, an my mum and dad couldn't afford to buy me a push bike. So I used to work night and day. I, had, I used to onion pick, potato pick. I had gardening jobs. I had car cleaning um, and paper round. I'd get up at six in the morning so I could buy this push bike, which I eventually did. It was very expensive and because I used to do road racing. That's, there's only way to get it. It's desire, though, isn't it? You know, it's, it's absolutely it's good motivator, isn't it? Oh, it was work for mate. It was really, it was so. Oh, it was, it was a dream come true when I picked the day I picked that up. Mm. Absolutely. Um, I'm just looking at my list as reference. So yeah, so thatching basically at the age of eleven, I started work, and I was allowed on the roof as well. No health and safety. Big Pullman's fire ladders we used to use, huge heavy things, and I was allowed to come up behind whoever was thatching bring up all the straw and I was taught to walk up the ladder, no hands, straw under the arm and just walk up the roof. Right? Cause I've got really good balance. I was really flexible and I could, uh, I could do these things. So they, so they, he saw something in me. So basically when I left school at the age of 16, I went from the school to work. Oh, you would do. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like it would have been desperate for you to leave school by the sound of it so that you could, you could have your full time. Well, I did, and I went to work for somebody he trained for a, for, for a couple of years as well and ended up going back to work with George. That story really is irrelevant, what happened there. What isn't, what is more relevant is that the age of 17, it's around 17, mid-17, I was self-employed and I, I became the youngest Master Thatcher in the country. Normally you're about 30, 35 minimum for a master Thatcher to, to pass. I passed at 17 because I've been working since I was 11. That means that you can thatch a roof on your own from start to finish with no help. Okay, so I've got an, I've got an exa couple of examples here for you just, to, just for reference. So that's the cottage I was born in and that's when I was 20, actually just after we got married, me and Jane. Um, All that on there at the minute then, is that... Is that the thatch being laid? Oh yeah, it is, isn't it? It's, that's that the reed. That's that's that. Normally, North reed. That was actually from Germany. The reed came. So you've got to rebuild the roof from scratch because that that originally was a crook end house built yeah. in the 14th century. Yeah. Um, so the roof had never been changed. It's. It, I mean, is that an undercoat, and then you couldn't carve it and shape it? Well, basically, the the, the reed that you. Um, let me see if I can give you a better clue. No, it's not really. This will give you an example of the ridge. Anyway, you can see the ridge. So the roof is reed, yeah. water reed, and the ridge is made of what's called long wheat straw. And yeah. it all lies uphill. So the reed tends to be about seven to eight foot long on the roof, and it's a foot thick. And the ridge is uh, a foot thick, and that's wheat straw. And it goes over the top, it's bent over. And then that's where you see this. This is our, our Thatcher signature, is your scallops and the way you do your bars. You'll see them on different houses. That was the, the top bit where the where the bits of straw are. are yeah. So you, what you do is you, you you do one the front side of the roof, normally the front of the house. That this comes up over the top, and then you thatch from the other side, and it kills underneath, and, and then this folds over, wow. and it becomes an envelope to a point, yeah. so that you end. So you can see the end end of that roof there. That's amazing. Folded yeah. over, and one of my signatures was what was called a bird's beak. It doesn't show up very well. The thatch comes out at the end. Yeah, it's, 
there's a lot of thatches that do quite th a lot thinner roofs, especially the Norfolk reed thatches. We tended to overdo it and make them more chocolate boxy and thicker. I mean, the, the roof itself will last 70 years and the ridge will last 25 years. That was the lifespan of it. I like so, the way you call it chocolate box. It does look... <laughs> well, a lot of them were. A lot of beautiful places we were. But the, the problem with thatching was that before I was married, you were working away. It was a very... Not, so bo not bohemian, really, more more hobo. You lived in a caravan and you lived away 52 weeks of the year. You, you maybe come home for Christmas and you lived in a caravan next to the house you were working on and that was it. No money, very little food and working seven days a week. So I think by, by the age of 19, I had a lot of stomach ulcers because you'd go to the pub at night and drink and smoke and that's all you did. You didn't eat. You just worked. You just lived for work. Yeah. Um, but what I decided was, when I got married to Jane, which is now 34 years ago, uh, she worked as my labourer for a while. I went solo on my own. And it was, wasn't a life for a married couple, really. And we wanted to have children, which we did, Ben and Anisia. <clears throat> so I decided to stop thatching. And one of the main... The not very nice point about that is actually I was a little bit forced to do it. Um, having a bank account, you had to have overdrafts to be able to afford all the materials. And one day Barclays Bank decided they changed the bank manager and he phoned up and said, you can't have an overdraft anymore and finished me on the day. That was the end of my business. I couldn't get any money. So I had to stop there and that really forced my arm. So from there, we lived in Derbyshire in a place called near Matlock Bath there, Cromford in Derbyshire, quite a famous place. When I was thatching in the winter, we used to do a lot of tree surgery and also hurdle making. Do you know what that is? The fence panels. We're getting... The woven flat panels of hazel. They used to use yeah. them in cheap pens for separation. Oh, right. yeah, 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 yeah. Now you'll see them fancy ones in gardens. Yeah. And we used to make yeah. stacks of these things in the winter because we used to coppice a lot of hazel for the roof, for the, you know, for, for these rods and the pegs. Yeah. We used to make in would make up to two thousand pegs a day that stapled this on, and the rods working like hard work. So we did hurdles as well. So I'd already got I'd played around with basket making in the fact I'd used hazel, and there was a company in Cromford that uh, imported baskets. So I went and asked them for a job, and they were over the moon because nobody did basket making anymore commercially. So I went to work for them, and they employed me on the basis I could make a basket. Never made one in my life. So I went into my cellar in the house, got an old basket and worked it out, took the basket apart and basically, right, this is this. I made a basket, took it back to him three days later and said, you've got the job. And it was, and the guy thought so much of what I'd done, he paid my overdraft off from a business. Wow. And gave me a job, which was really good of him. And I worked it off. So from there, I became a designer and moved. That was... Well, I was a basket maker in total for 25 years. In that time, I made, give or take 10,000, we worked out I'd made a quarter of a million baskets in that time. Wow. Now, I can't say that was enjoyable, Rich. That's how I get your hands, Doug. Let's see your hands. The, the calluses have gone. Are you, to be honest, this is a working with leather. You don't get it. You know, like, what your hands have achieved, man, it's amazing. We used to have calluses, and the calluses would go down, right down into the palm. Now with leather work and using oils, that's gone now. So I've got 
soft hands again thank goodness i mean it's ruined all my joints but they're all they're all loose and wobbly <laughs> and um that's another story into it <laughs> so basically i worked through this business and i became a designer and they were importing for say they were making baskets for boots for yeah. Christmas, for putting soaps in. I'd be the person that designed those baskets that were sent to China and 35,000 would come back made for Christmas. Oh. But I also did a lot of bespoke work. Like for, I worked for Rolls-Royce making hampers for the back of the, well, for Bentley actually, for the back of Bentleys and Harrods and Heels of London and the Ritz Hotel. And then I started working for the Prince of Wales Trust to work for them for many years. Coppice in the Hazer, Coppice in the Hazel, Coppice in the Willow at Highgrove off the Willow Beds, bringing it back and making baskets for the Prince's Trust shop at Highgrove. Did that for many years. It was hard work. I mean, it, it was very repetitive work. It's very factory work orientated basket making. So it became very boring. So when you say, how long does it take to master something? I went way past that. I took... I like to think of materials, anything that we use, whether you're using aluminium to make a killer bee or whether I'm using willow to make a basket, that material has its uses and it's stretching those boundaries of what the usefulness is of that material. And that's really what I did with willow from sidecars for motorbikes. I made a seat for a vintage plane after they were made out of willow originally because they were flex bloom baskets, you know. Yeah, yeah, everything. <laughs> Um, yeah, and, and there's you've told me that you once fell asleep making a basket and woke up. <laughs> it was more than once. There's a few in right. So, I had a contract working for an a international company making light shades. And Jane and I, because Jane also made some some forms of baskets, yeah. uh, we'd fill a sprinter with light shades stacked every two weeks night and day, seven days a week. It's a big contract. And yeah, there was times I was so tired. I'd work from, I'd start at seven in the morning and I'd work through till sometimes two in the morning, nonstop. Mm. And yeah, I fell asleep and woke up and I'd finished the basket. <laughs> I just think that's hilarious. It would have been amazing to watch you doing it, you know, in your sleep. It's uh I mean, there was just times I just generally just fell to sleep and slumped in the chair and couldn't make yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, cause exhaustion. Yeah. Um, the, things like the coffins making the coffin, because we worked for the cooperative in Yorkshire and we made all the wicker coffins for many years in the garage, in the garage at the side of the house, which was cold work. And I had instances there, had rushing to get the coffins out in time. Yeah. And the willow freezing on me, the temperatures were so low that the willow started snapping it and my hand stuck to the willow. It was frozen solid, no heating. Yeah, because you've, you've got to soak it, haven't you? You've got to... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it has to be soaked overnight, 12 hours, buff willow before you use it. But yeah, so there's a few instances like that. With The same with the thatching, really. I'm, it's not a sob story, this. It's just the way things were, and I just accepted it. When we were thatching and we used to live in the caravan, I can remember waking up in the morning and there was frost on top of my bed on top of the sheets and the kettle was frozen that was quite frequent and you had to dig your way out of the caravan to get to the house and dig the snow out you know yeah pretty hardcore stuff in fact there was a, there, there was an article in the derbyshire times somebody had passed us on uh, near ashbourne in derbyshire and passed the house we were working on and we we're actually thatching in a blizzard 
and we dug the roof out. And the title said, these are not men of straw. <laughs> <laughs> nah, you're certainly not that, Doug. So um, the, the Trout fam, where, where, where's this in all this? Because I just, I just love this. And I, I, I've never seen anything. I don't know whether you've got any pictures, but all I've got in my head is, is mental images from this. Do you know what I mean? Okay. So the, the company in Derbyshire owned a mill, the, the, the basket wear company owned a mill. And there was a, a defunct water wheel outside. Now it was a five ton pitchback wheel cast. So one of Sir Richard Arkwright's wheels. So where we were was uh, in Cromford was there was a valley called Vigelia Valley. And there were 52 water wheels up this valley that Sir Richard Arkwright had put in wow. for the mills, for the cotton mills, down to a place called Masson Mill, which is the biggest, I think they can, you can see Masson Mill from space. It's that large. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. And this wheel had been disused for many years, hadn't turned. So they brought a company in from Loughborough University to change the bearings in the wheel and get it moving again. Underneath the wheel was a a, a sparapex stone mill race that the wheel ran in yeah. and it filled there was a little tiny bit of water and I'd worked out I'd said to my boss that I was working for us like this is a mill race under here this is all going to be stonework so what I did in my spare time every dinner time I dug it out over about a year and the, the mill had been a motorcycle shop for many years and it had been, they chucked all the rubbish in there, basically all the bits of motorbike and cables and stuff. It had just gone in the water. Mm. So I cleaned, I cleaned this mill race out until it was down to the Sparapex stone. And then it was decided that we'd put fish grids in one end and the water was just the right temperature to keep trout. So what I did is I put lighting underneath the water in the side of the walls and put some fish in it and hope they'd grow. They did. They grew extremely well. It was the only place in Derbyshire where rainbow trout grew to, I think the biggest one was, I can't remember the weight, but I know it was two and a half foot long. <laughs> right. And they actually, the, the couple that owned the company, I, I actually could, used to catch them on hand line when they were big enough and they'd have them for dinner parties. And I'd get in the water with these huge fish and they knew they've got a lifespan, obviously, but they started spawning. They, they went up inside a mill race in a tunnel, started laying eggs and they started breeding. Wow. It so, was quite amazing. So did you, did, did you live in the mill house? No, 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 no. I lived, I lived in, right. Okay. Jane and I lived in, in one of Sir Richard Arkwright's cottages, mill cottages. Just up the road from the mill. Uh, that, no, that was my workshop where I worked. Right. Basically, just behind the water wheels, turning around was where I, where I sat and worked all day. Uh, now, Cromford's an amazing, beautiful place. There's a pond, actually, there's a big mill pond outside, and there used to be swans in there and, and ducks, and beautiful place. And I started building, I've got a fascination for not boats in general, but small boats. I started making coracles. Oh, yes, yeah, like the. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle shells. <laughs> sort of. Well, there was a coracle in particular I was fascinated by from Wales on the River Terra. I think it's Terriff, River Terriff. And it was slightly rectangular with an open scoop front. So I thought, well, it's just a basket. So I made one with a seat in it and covered it in 
canvas and pitch and tar and I used to punt around on this thing I ended up making quite a lot of coracles in the end I made some up here as well uh, and they're really good and stable so you can use them for fishing well I used it to go and rescue swans and ducks that are in distress get a couple of uh, coracles made and we'll go up to locker up the road from you and, and me and you'll go fishing on, on, on them things <laughs> over the top of them big pike that are in there yeah <laughs> Yeah, and it was a fascinating time working for that company, but I found it, <clears throat> obviously, I was working for them, so I was told what to do, and I needed out of that situation because freedom for me was the most important thing, uh, doing what I wanted, and I wanted, we had to do a lot of shows basically around the country, the Royal Show, Badminton Burley, all the horse trials, and I was away from the kids when they were young and Jane, and it wasn't a good thing. Uh, through the summer. So I basically, I basically set up Corzina Baskets, started working. I was still working for that company. And for two years, I worked at home at night. So I was working night and day for two years until I could transition into Corzina Baskets, which I did. Now, Corzina Baskets was bought, uh, the, the name was born out of the fact that my one of my grandparents on my mum's side, my grandma came from Siberia. And basically, Corzina means baskets in Siberian. So it's right. baskets. baskets. Um, homage to my grandma. Uh, funnily enough, that, that goes back actually. I found out that my great granddad, well, in fact, my great great granddad was a Cossack, but my great granddad, he was quite inventive and he made a lot of things. He did basket making, he did the wine and beer making like I do, he grew his own vegetables like we do. And my nan told me before she died, she said, like, not only do you look like him, but you are exactly like him in everything that you do, which mm. was an honor, you know, absolute honor. So something came through on the DNA, I think, there. Quite, yeah, you know, yeah the reincarnation. Tough and hard working, you know, just naturally. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so going on to that, uh, sorry, going on to basket making, we were stuck in Derbyshire in a small a small uh, terraced house, and we'd got, we'd got the military land red. We used to go out and explore a lot with the kids. We grew our own vegetables. We did the basket making. It really didn't fit in a town situation. Like we were oddballs as it were. So I decided, we decided to move and we looked from France to Land's End to John O'Groats. We were going to go somewhere where there was less people, basically, less of society. Wanted to take the kids and have the freedom that I had when I was a kid somewhere. And we found Dumfries and Galloway, which mm -hmm. They said 60 people per square mile. I thought that's for us. So we came up and had a look and found this house, as you know, Crogo Bridge. Yeah. And Which carried on back. House. Sorry? Which is not just a house. We've just dated. Did I tell you we've just dated it? Have you? Oh, yeah. 1417. Yeah. It's 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 quite a special place, isn't it? How, how old does that make it? Old enough. You work it out. 1417. <laughs> That's old. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's not just a house, is it? Because you actually technically own the whole village. Yes. Yeah. How, like, you know, how do you end up, end, end up owning a whole village? Well, the, it stopped being a village, obviously, you know, a hundred and, well, actually, say 150 years ago, we just met a man who lived in Delbeti. He was in his 90s and he came tentatively. He was stood on the bridge one day with it, with his grandchildren. And I went out because he was there for so long and asked him. And he was born in a cottage at the side of the house. Wow. 
and he remembers he's the man that told us about the different roads and places that existed there because uh, there's a the village we're in is Corsac, but Corsac didn't exist then. It was Crogo Village, which serviced a castle up the road called Crogo Towers. It was that's why it was built. Mm -hmm. But um, I think it, the, the castle fell into disrepair in seventy in the late seventeen hundreds, and the village depleted in numbers until the stone from the houses was taken to build the road to Monyive and a village nine miles away. So our house was the only house left in it. Now our house was the Napier Arms Inn. It was a pub and a cobbler's shop. As you know, we've got two front doors. Yeah. Um, the pub then became a pharmacist's. Right. And it was a general shop as well. Uh, yeah. So the Napier Arms Inn uh, was a pub for a long time until somebody, some religious person bought up all the licenses and it became uh, temperance, no alcohol to be sold right. in the area. Uh, but the cobbler shop, as you well know, the two brothers, when it, the last time it was a cobbler shop anyway, the two brothers there, for whatever reason, invented sodium street lighting and moved to America from our living room, which is, still blows my mind. Yeah. And you're writing some, uh, you started writing like the history of Crogor Bridge now, haven't you? And going into the over the years of being here in the past 18 years i've been fascinated with because there's not many people here as you know and the people there are old families and they've all got a bit of information yeah. so we've gathered this information over the years and i've pieced it together on an ancient map that i found in the london archives an old map of when the tower was actually up still the castle was up so we're piecing it all together slowly what will come of it i don't know we're it's really just our own fascination but would like to put it, yeah, we'd like to put it all together for somebody to, people have tried in the past, but they seem to be missing big chunks. Yeah. Uh, the geography of the area and where roads and buildings were placed, you know, the settlement. All that sort of stuff, isn't it? And uh, getting out there with a metal detector and stuff. And, uh... It'd be nice, yeah, yeah, to be, it'd be lovely. Just, to, just for the, just purely because that time fascinates me. Any time pre- industrial revolution fascinates me i know it was a hard time but i would love to have been alive there mm. or just have a glimpse at it what it was like a hard life but a good life yeah it's, it's, it's fascinating and and the way you live is very um it's very oldy worldy you're not off grid but you're you're very self-sufficient and and live almost like people would back then really you know you you still grow your own vegetables and you know, you, you, you dry your food, don't you? Like, uh, what's oh, that? Yeah. You dry it and store it for... Oh, yeah, yeah, long-term storage of food. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I mean, the, the wine and beer and uh, things things we make of that nature. There's a lot. I mean, we don't even buy coffee beans. Well, we roast our own coffee beans. You know, we don't just buy coffee. We've yeah. got a big coffee mill that we, gr we grind it. I, I mean, I was a bit of a purist, to be honest. And it was only for myself. I didn't project this onto anybody else or the family. But like when I was basket making, I would not use a tool with a plastic handle. Yeah. Wood or leather. Yeah. Or metal. Yeah. Uh, not so much, not now, obviously, because I do engineering work as well. But yeah, I, I wanted to keep things as pure and simple as possible, most basic. What can you create? What I actually did many years ago, uh, basket making, I went into a wood with willow. I took a nail and uh, it, it wasn't a knife. It was a sharpened piece of metal. And I came out with a basket. I wanted to see what you could get away with in making a basket. What was the most basic? I was going to try and use flint 
Sharp and Flint, but I thought it's taking a bit ridiculous. Like I'll be there forever. Yeah. But, but yeah, and I came out with a basket from it. So how far you can take something, isn't it? When we met, going back to when we met, I think off the top of my head, I think it was about two thousand and five. Yeah. Um, and um, I think we were both fascinated with each other's minds, really. The, the definitely. And um. Obviously, I I came up. <laughs> it's it's. I love coming to your house because that that room that you're sat in now, you know that that may as well be your entire house for me. Do you know what I mean? It's like like <laughs> the, the rest exists, but like it's that room, you know. Like, and I just love being in there because it's got all the things that you, some things that you've created, the stuff that you, you you're on with creating, and it always changes as well. Every time I visit you that room is different you've made something new and 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 something's been re re replaced but when uh, i first went into that that that, that room um my, and and obviously so this was my absorption my first absorption of what you were on with at the time so there was baskets and you were still making baskets mm -hmm. um not a lot but i think you're still doing them for Prince Charles, weren't you? So, yes. Um, and then um, there was knives, like like handmade knives with you know all sorts of different knives with like handmade leather sheaths, and they just fit so beautifully. And then there was um, things made out of copper hanging, like, and this was your steampunk era, you know, like yeah. Oh, yeah copper creations and brass and stuff you had a computer that was an exoskeleton copper frame where and it was water cooled where all the water ran through the copper pipes and all the copper pipes were etched so you hadn't left any detail undone. you had a laptop in a in a wooden box so it looked like a wooden box but when you opened it, it was a laptop in fact i think it was hanging on the wall it was it was in a picture frame yeah, there was a laptop in a picture frame. The, um, the candles that had a candle inside a copper pipe. That oh, was they're still there in the kitchen. We yeah, use them. I love them. That was capped off with the, the, the just the wick coming through, a reflector at the back, and a spring in the bottom. So it pushed instead of the candle burning down, it the spring pushes the candle up so the flame stays at the same height all the time, right in front of the reflector. Yeah. I, I was just like, I, I just remember being absolutely fascinated about by all this stuff and then realizing that you'd made it all and it just didn't stop. It's never, it's never stopped with you. Do you know what I mean? Like every time you, 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 you've <laughs> leveled up your skills, you've, you've uh, broadened the stuff that you do. You make cigars, you, 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 and, and you've, heavily now moved into your into your leather work which I, I was saying to you the other day i i think that the leather works kind of a evolution of what you do with the motorbikes because you also build custom motorbikes very nice custom motorbikes harley davidson's and all sorts of different bikes but you do it in your way with your skill set with your attention to detail and, and 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 your style you know so i think the leather work and the motorbikes just really fit well together with the, 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 you know, the leather panniers and the grips and the seats. And I was going to say, sorry for interrupting, but you're, you know, you know, you're talking about if I can show that on 
camera. Can you see that etching? Yep, yeah, I can see it. Yeah. Right. So that process didn't didn't exist. It's ele so electroplating, um, positive and negative, obviously, of flat plates has been done for a long time, but you couldn't do tubes, and I worked a process out of being able to do a, a cylindrical shape etched yeah. all the way around at once. And it worked. And that's how I managed to do, I did, I made a lot of cigar tubes. And as you say, the computer, which I've still got somewhere, the frame of it. But that process was, I was really pleased with that idea that I came up with. Sold a lot of them. Sold a USB sticks. I used to make tons of USB sticks all etched. Now, uh, let me just say at this point, we've went through a lot of stuff that, that you do and that you create. Um, uh, I, I, I want to get certain things we, we, we definitely need to go deeper into it so um people who's listening anything that doug's mentioning about the leather or uh, the knives or etching copper or all of these things we're looking at doing some classes to some some video workshops to um show people how how to do this stuff because um it's 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 just a fascinating thing. Some of them are really old skills, really unique skills that that, that just aren't widely accessible, um, but uh, are, are all something that you can sit and do from 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 your home as well. So um, we will be looking to do that in the future. So if anybody wants to go deeper on any of these things and learn more about what we're talking about. Um, let us know and we'll uh, see if we can do like a little video workshop on, on, on that something, yeah? Yeah, there's something else that's got to be pointed out here. So uh, as you can see from the start to finish, I've been basically most of the time self-employed and I like, to, I like to use the word artist. I think it's a fair... You are an artist, Doug, because you create yeah. the things that you make, you don't copy them. No. Oh, no, 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 no. No, but in that comes the business side of it, of course. So because you create doesn't mean to say you can sell. Yeah. The problem is I want to make the things that I like to make. It's like, so when I'm painting, if I'm doing a landscape painting, I want to paint one because otherwise I wouldn't paint it. When I used to paint for money, you'd be painting something that somebody else wanted. It wasn't the same feeling. Same with the basket, same with everything. So generally, I've always tried to steer myself towards things that I enjoy making. But that doesn't mean they sell. Yeah. You know, that in like, so the knives, for instance, I mean, I don't, I, most of the things I've got, I've sold and I've got very little. So, so as you say, like making knives like that. Yeah. Well, that was one I made for my dad. My dad had passed away two years ago. I, I brought it back so it didn't get lost. Um, they, people selling these online, people can't see the quality. So no. this is the problem we have with the leather work is, when I show a picture of something, it can be as detailed as you like, but they don't know the amount of detail gone into that item. Yeah. It's trying to sell that across to a customer. Yeah. Because ultimately I do need to sell what I'm making yeah. uh, to keep going so I can fund it. Absolutely. But, and you have got loads of stock there as well. So that's oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But you have got loads of stuff there that you, that you haven't sold and that is definitely carrying value, you know? So, um, you are, again we'll be like putting in links to your website and stuff so have you got all that stuff on there um, um the, the, the the problem i have at the moment richard is that i have to do everything 
from start to finish. So whether it's designing to making, to selling, to posting, to doing the website, every process, none of it's done out of, out of this room, basically. Yeah, I know. So one of, in the process at the moment is, is revamping the website. So there's little stock on there at the moment. Mm. And I've got a lot of stock to go on that I've been making since the lockdown. Yeah. But then again, I've also started a new business, which a new side to the business, which is called the English Sixpenny Company. Right. You can't buy anything from it yet, but some of the goods have made already. Yeah. And, and I'm trying to focus on that side is pure finesse. It's how good can you make something? Yeah. So every time, as you know, as well as I do, if you're engraving or whether you're putting together one of the machines, one of the killer bees, you try and make it better than the last one. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if I'm making, for instance, if I'm making leather pouches for somebody, for I make a lot for Leatherman's leather pouches. Yeah. yeah? Every one I make, if I was making 10, I want the 10th one to be better than the first. Yeah. So that's what I've brought to the English Sixpenny Company. So for, if I can, can I just show you an example of bag? Sure, sure, sure as you yeah. still do. So what I'm trying, I'm trying to offer is an old world business in modern times. So old skill set. So as you know, none of this is automated. I'm not using what's called clicker presses or die presses to cut anything out. Everything's cut and dyed by hand. I also don't use pre-dyed materials. So the leather basically comes, if I can just grab a bit, the leather comes as veg tan like that. And then you dye it to that. Right. Yeah. So I'm hand dyeing, which gives you slight imperfections in the colours, which is beautiful. Absolutely gorgeous. But this is about the finished quality that's not factory made. But you could say, hopefully, if you look at one of my bags and say, look, it's pigskin lined. If you looked at one of my bags, you'd say that's been professionally made is what you're looking for, aren't you? Yeah. But it's been made by hand. Trying to sell that through the Internet is quite difficult. Yeah. No, because they don't know the time. The, the amount of time that has taken to make, I can only make one a day, mm. you know? And <clears throat> so yeah. I'm, applying, I'm applying that to the new stuff and things like purses, ladies' purses. They're all pigskin line, different colours. Yeah, now, you, for me, what have you done for me? You you, you started doing the killer bee pouches for yeah. us, the, the, the holsters for the, for, for the killer bees. Um, Absolutely love those things. I've still got my King Bee in one now. We stopped selling them because people didn't really dig it. No, 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 I get that. I get that. That's fine. Get it. But um, there was the belts that you had done for us, like the Killer Bee belts, fantastic bit of branding. In fact, I want some uh, key rings done. Yeah. Like, so, so if you could do some, uh, like, just for, for giveaways on the on the page and stuff so i get a batch of uh leather key rings off you um uh, you did us the 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 aprons oh yeah which were they like still got a couple of those upstairs have you well yeah. so any time is still listening there's a there's a couple of uh incredibly high quality uh tattooists aprons aprons there is it the ones with the the yeah, so the latest ones, yeah. So like you can yeah. get your, your large scale iPhone in the pocket, you can get a bunch of Sharpies in there. Um so yeah, it's uh absolute bit of quality material. So um yeah. if I can, if I can interrupt, but so I I whenever I'm still excited about what I make, I'm gonna go on and make more of that. And I, and, and to be honest, I found with leather 
you can push the boundaries. It's such a, you know, compared to say, so wood is an amazing material, metal, you can do just about anything. Mm-hmm. Willow, that, that was more, that was a narrower band. With leather, I'm trying to push it outwards in different directions all the time. So I've got ideas for sculptures that I've been wanting to do for a long time. Whether or not they sell, I don't know, but I'll probably end up doing them anyway. Large sculptures in leather. So on last Sunday, I decided I'd been working normally, making the bags, making the wallets for the website, but I decided to have a day off, which I never do. I work seven days a week. What did I do? Some leather work. And I made two bags and I changed the rules in the way I think about what to do. Use the same skill set, but don't go to the finesse. Go to totally freehand, no, nearly no measurements taken. And I made two bags and I'll just show that they're actually hung up behind me there. I call them finds bags. So what I wanted to do is create a bag that was looked like it was made in Saxon times, medieval. Yeah. yeah. So just the same quality leather and the same process, but just hand done, hand carved, little bone, that, that's horn, closure yeah. on it, no finished edges. Strong, I mean, you could fill it with bricks and it would last forever. Riveted, big copper rivets, sixpence on the front. You can see the sixpence and just hand carved. I did two of them in an afternoon for fun. Right. Okay. So let's do a little. So can you hold up both of those bags? The, the... Right. Okay. I'm, I'm absolutely sold on this, but can people please let us know their thoughts as well on this uh, the, the um, obviously if you're watching on the YouTube channel which bag do you prefer <laughs> well people have said already and that that's the distressing bit it's like so the finest work I can do people don't necessarily want mm. I mean here's another example I created these a couple of days later for metal detector finds pouches out of leather that I couldn't use for anything else. I knocked these up, so you stick it on your belt and you can drop, because obviously we want to go around the garden. And I've got some friends that are into metal detecting. They will love that. <laughs> and, ah, oh, man, that's amazing. And you, you essentially could apply um, that to any trade, uh, any, you know... Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. You know. it's, the, it's not that it's just leather. It's leather is durable. There's nothing else like it. I've got to show you this, because this is the most bizarre one. I said to Jane... Just because you can make something doesn't mean to say you should, <laughs> right? Bear that in mind. So when you're digging and doing metal detecting, there's a lot of stone around here and you use trowels and things, as you know. Right. No, we need a pry bar. Mm. Enter the pry bar. <laughs> <laughs> but I had to put a leather handle on it. You know what I mean? I stitched the leather hand onto a pry bar and just said, I looked at her after I finished and said, just because you can doesn't mean to say you should. Uh, no, it, it, it works and, and a pry bar is a hard thing to, to, to carry about. That probably straps onto your belt as well, does it? And just hang yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just so practical, isn't it? And you see a problem and you see a solution and then you, you just go ahead, full steam ahead and create that solution really you're a fantastic problem solver um, well, the, the other thing is can you just go like into the background and talk us through some of the other stuff that's that's you're gonna be able to hear me okay yeah 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 go on right um i do i do some 
coats and things as well. Well, waistcoats, really. I've designed coats, but that's uh, that's got sixpences on it. That's made of an oil impregnated leather. Um, that looks yeah. kind of Viking-y as well, doesn't it? So, sort of, yeah. Yeah, that's the idea. It looks slightly military and that, but it's just something. I, to, be, to be honest, Richard, most of the time I wake up in the morning because I don't, because of my fibromyalgia and this Earl's Danlos syndrome thing, I've got the pain, the amount of pain I'm in. I wake up quite early and quite often I found that I've already been awake an hour before and I've just designed something in my head. Yeah. And I wake up as I've finished it and it's like, oh, that's what I'm doing today. Right. And it, sometimes it seems like it's got nothing to do with me. Yeah. It just appears. Um, yes yeah, so, uh, there's so much stuff to be honest man. I mean satchels I've started making satchels wow look at the colour of that yeah they're crazy aren't they these, these, aren't even up, these aren't even up for sale yet to be honest man. I've got so much stuff that's not on for sale that people only see well that can't come and see at the moment well that's pig I tend to use suede oh, skin lined that, how, that's a gorgeous colour. Like it's it's flipping from it's like a marble blue that flips to purple. Right. So what I do. So again, I'm using I'm using um, oil dyes. Uh, the best oil dyes they are. Fibbins oil dyes. Yeah. Uh, plug for them. Uh, American. And I take the the, the natural coloured leather, as I said. So the veg tan, and I dye it by hand using sponges and different processes. Well, what I did is I found if I got some black and I did it first with black with a rag and I'd just tumble it around randomly yeah. and, and then put a dye wash over the top, whether it's red, green, purple, you get this marbled effect. Yeah, because that's how we, that's amazing. That's how we used to do the, the marble on the cars. You yeah, put, yeah, same thing. Exactly the same. Well, slightly different process, but pretty much the same thing. That's amazing. On bike, bike, you know, bike paintings on bikes, murals and things. Yeah. Uh, belts. You see, when, when somebody sells when somebody sells your belt, for instance, I mean, you see a belt on the website. Oh, it's just a belt. There you go. Right. So the, these belts that all the buckles I use are made in England, cast in Nuxford by a company called Abbey England. Uh, I don't use imported buckles unless there's no alternative, yeah. but so they these they hand cast these for me. This is a fireman's one, a quick release one. It's actually the design comes from the London uh, Fire Brigade um, when they used to use leather reels. When they got to the fire to undo the strap quickly, they could release it and flick it out, and out came the reel. Abbey England cleverly found the pattern for it and started making them again, and they're just lovely things. So these these are all made of English veg tan hide uh bridal hide so it's the best leather there is it's last a lifetime and everything's hand stitched so i don't stitch that on a machine that's stitched by hand so but um again for people listening i've had belts you've made and uh, well, it's my favorite belt you know like like I'm wear, whenever i'm wearing a belt i'm wearing that one as long as it can fit on my pants because it's quite wide but you embossed um killer bee into the leather and so for someone who was wanting a bespoke belt, like uh, other tattoo studio owners or business owners that, 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 you know, would just like to have their name on their belt because they can, or a family name or whatever. I mean, that would make a fantastic present for someone to, to, to uh, a, a handmade belt with their name on it or the, 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 the business name on it. 
and no, I'm asking you, can you do that? What's the process? Like if, if I've, I've done it and you did it for me, can other people come to you and say, right, I, I want a belt with my, my, my family name on it? There's three options. There's three options for that. So the, the, the first way is for a one-off, which is when you use hand carving. So like this. Yeah. Okay. So that's been, that's been done with a knife and a hammer and you're chiseling it into wet leather. That's for a one-off. You can't go very small on that. Obviously you, you, you're restricted by the size of the tools. Um, you can have a stamp made as you, as you know, you can have a stamp like that's one of my stamps I use. And if you had a stamp made, you need a, you, you've, what I do is I sell the customer the stamp. I don't make any money on it. So whatever logo it is, if they can send me the artwork, I send it to a company in Manchester. They make the stamp up and then the person pays for the stamp. They then own that stamp because I can't own somebody's logo. So this is your stamp. Now, anything that you buy from me, it's stamped for free. I don't charge for the stamping part. So they own the stamp. If they request it, they can have the stamp. I'll send it to them. Yeah. But from then on. So really, you want a minimum order for depends, depends on the item and the cost of the item. The average stamp cost is between, I'd say, 30 and 40 pounds, as long as it's not too big. Wow. I, I did. Sorry. How much does a belt cost to make? 60 pounds. Right. So for under 100 pounds, you're getting a custom made. If you just got one. Yeah. You are getting a custom made belt with a super high quality buckle on it that's got your details, whatever you want on it, embossed into this thing. And you own that stamp so that if you were to get you to make another belt, it would yep. only cost you £60 thereafter. And if you wanted a handbag uh, it, it would uh, with that stamped on it, it would just cost the price of the hammer. Doug, that, that's amazing. And the price of that belt is not too much, like £100. For that belt, if you've got to include the stamp in it, then that's fair enough. That belt is worth a hundred pounds. I'd like to think so. I, I, I see it as worth a hundred pounds, and I think other people who understand quality crafts made stuff would totally appreciate that as well, man. So, like that, yeah. I, I think I'm gonna order some belts off you for, for Christmas presents. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the kettle, you know, the weightlifting belts, obviously. I'll just show you. Oh, yeah, the weightlifting belts that that, that became quite a a big thing all of a sudden for you, didn't it? Well, I mean, th these are all fastened together, but wait, wait, so I started making weightlifting belts for kettlebell lifters, and that's some of that random pattern on there. I love that. That looks like uh, a walnut. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's thick ones, thin ones. So basically, I custom make weightlifting belts. So whether it's strongman stuff, whether it's just for the gym, whether it's just for back support, we've done quite a few for those, but mainly it's been for kettlebell lifters because there's been nobody in the world. There was one person in Russia making kettle custom made kettlebell belts for women. So I started doing those and I sold them globally until the shutdown, until the lockdown. We were sell that's all I was doing was making belts and companies would come to me and say, can I have a stamp? Yes, you've got the stamp. Then they'd start ordering them for the gym. And then there would be stamped for free. So they've got their own personalised belt for the gym. So did a lot of that. So it's unfortunately it's died off now. Hopefully it'll come back in time. Uh, but that, that was our biggest part of our business was, was weightlifting belts. 
Yeah. Yeah, certainly. If a if a customer wants if a customer wants a company wants a stamp or even personally, no problem at all. It's easy. Several ways. I mean, even if you put somebody's name on it, it's, uh, there's lettering I can in small five mil lettering I can put on about somebody's name. I'll do that for free because yeah. I have a, a set that I can make a yeah, yeah. normal punch sort yeah. of set. Yeah. Yeah, and lever lever it in. Absolutely. Yeah. That's absolutely amazing. And even that speaker in the background there, you you, you made that as well. It the speakers. Yeah, I use them every day. Lovely speakers. Beautiful old speakers. They are absolutely. And uh, the clock chiming in the background. You, 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 uh, he, said, he said to us at the start of this, he said, do you want us to turn the clock off? I didn't know you could turn an old clock off like that. But well, that's... no, stop the pendulum. <laughs> um, because it chimes every every 15 minutes. And I, I says, no, like, like, leave it on. I, I love that. But is, that's something that you, that's just a restoration, is it? Yeah, basically, my dad, my dad, had, his eyesight failed as he got older, but he'd had the clock for 20 years. And when he passed away, mum said, you know, clear some stuff out. And I brought the clock back and stripped it down, rebuilt it and got it running. There's a few, I've got a few of them in the house that I've rebuilt because he taught me from a young age how how to do it, how watches and clocks work. Because as a child, I was, I was two things I was fascinated with. Clockwork, because my dad was a collector of Meccano. So from a very young age, I had all the Meccano I wanted. And I've still got it all up to oh, wow. up to number 10. Come oh, on. Can I come Meccano. around and play Meccano with you? Oh mate, I tell you what, he once built he once built a walking robot that was five foot tall, a sewing machine that worked. And the worst one was he tried building, he was he was really fascinated by ships, he tried building a seven-foot ship in the house and it was too big for the house in Meccano. Wow. And you've was, got all that Meccano. I've still got all of it, yeah. I've kept every piece. I've got up to number 10 plus half again. I've got a lot of Meccano. Yeah, I'd never get rid of it. It's fascinating stuff. I, I use it for all. It's good for thinking because uh, I've got all the cogs because all I've got prototyping and, and working things out. Absolutely. You can make gearboxes in it and differentials. And, and this is how I learned how motorbikes work, you know, by building these differentials and how, why gears, how you change gear and all these things. I used to make them in little frames. So have you thought about making a Meccano motorbike? It's been done. It was done. You can actually see a picture of it on Google. I'm not surprised, but it sounds like something that, like, you know, like, fits with you. Like, it doesn't have to be completely made out of Meccano, but if you used some of that Meccano for, you know, creating little boxes and and, and, and accents, a bit of, di you know, like some Meccano strip run up the side of the tank or something like that, that would look so cool. When I built the, the 79 shovel head, it sort of came into it. If you look at the bike, there's, there's there's pieces with tapered holes coming through. And I think it's a, I naturally put it in. I think it's a throwback to Meccano. Yeah. Want, not, not strong steampunk image, but that hand sculptured. And I, I'm sure that when I looked at it, I thought that's come from Meccano for definite. Yeah. The problem is it's time-wise. Because if you do enough things, in a, you run out of time. Oh, and you can say, which direction am I going now? And you're shooting off in different directions. Now I'm doing this, now I'm doing this. So I've had to hone it down a little bit and pull my reins in and say, right, you're doing leather work now. Work on this. Still got the motorbikes. I can't be outside. So, I mean, it must be said the reason I'm doing leather work is because of my health issues. I have to be in the house. I can't be outside doing the bikes. I can't do what I did before. I'm restricted by that. I don't see it as a restriction, but the pain levels means that I need to be warm. Yeah. So, as you know, the workroom. And, you know, you were talking about earlier, you said, 
it's been, this has been likened to the inside of my mind. You know, you said the inside of the room is fascinating. It's like the best bit there. Well, somebody said, this is the inside of your head, isn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that a good thing? Of course, it's a good thing. It's, and, and, and that's why I love it. Go on there, but they say that uh, someone's business is an outward expression of the personality of the person who, who runs it, you know? So, um, you know, like, you're just true to you, Doug, you know? You, you, you don't, there's no bullshit about you. There's no fakery. You just do what you enjoy doing. And you, 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 you put it out there and said, this is what I made, you know, because it, it, it came from you. And so that room is, is you, you know, it's a huge part of you, you know, so. Um, well, it almost, it almost feels like that I can't help it. As I say, if I'm not, if two days of not creating something, I'm pulling my hair out. I've got to do that, something. Do you think that like a creative mind has to um, uh, have that outlet? And can be, because for me, when, when I lost my dad and I lost the business, but I was flat out creating like 15 hours a day up to that. Yeah. When that went, I, I, I got depressed. I got anxiety. And this was around the time that we met. And um, you said, I can fix you. And I says, no, I don't want fixed. I want to, I want to go to the doctors to get my loony license. And um, yes, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's, it's soon, the day that I got a, uh, got my loony license um i came to see you and um you and jane done a session of nlp on us and it was like a two-hour session of nlp and that two-hour session of nlp cured what two years of medication didn't touch you know when you when you put it like that it, we didn't cure anything you cured you yeah yeah, yeah yeah no i'm not being i'm not being pedantic but what what i mean by that when most people don't know why they're compelled to do the things they do. They don't know why they're compelled to want to have children. They don't know why they're compelled to drink. And of course, I think you described in your video, uh, we're built on our past, the bricks of our past. And like going back to the very beginning, the book that my mum re read me, The Education of a Child, the first paragraph in that book said, from the moment a child opens its eyes, it is a photographic plate. Now at that age, at that young age, it clicked then. Everything I'm going to see in my life is going to build who I am. Now, that's the whole foundation behind NLP. Right. That's our timeline we're on. You're built by your experiences and what you do. And what do you want to do with that? And what do you project into the future from your past? Are you walking into your past? You know, the things that have happened to you, we often place in front of us and we walk into them. I'm always trying to refresh that. So I've got a clear future. Although... As I say, I don't like to use my health issues as it's not, I don't see it as a problem. It's a lot of pain. It's, um, and it can be hard work, but it's just another experience as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So it's a way to work around it. But that, that creative mind, I honestly believe that like, if we don't have an outlet, it's still there happening. And if yeah. you don't have that outlet, and I think that's what I did to myself, do you know what I mean? How I got so so um, mentally ill at the point, I guess, was because everything that was happening that I had an outlet for now was just spiraling and started to self-destruct us at a very rapid yeah. rate because 
I was very rapidly creating something. And if I wasn't able to create something good, then it sort of started to create something bad because I was surrounded by bad things at the time. But you really did fix that. And the experience of it, it was anxiety and pains in my chest, feeling like I was having a heart attack. Came to see you. Didn't fix things like that. But over the space of about a month, I was, uh, you know, about a month later, I, I thought to myself, <laughs> pains in my chest have gone. It creeps in, mate. It's so subtle that, that it just... <laughs> and, 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 you know, eternally grateful for that. But another thing that I'm eternally grateful for uh, is uh, you introduced me to the secret. I didn't actually take notice at the time because you gave me the book. And being a bit dyslexic as well, I'm not much of a reader, so uh, uh, the, the book wasn't appealing. And it was um, uh, another friend who, a few weeks later, brought round the DVD and said, here's the DVD to the book that Doug gave you that you haven't read. Mm -hmm. So now I had easy access to this thing that you were trying to get us to, 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 to take in. And, um, well, my, my, my life changed from that point, really. So... You know, oh, oh, sorry, sorry, Rich, I was just going to say, well, I think before I forget, you know, going back to what you said uh, a few minutes ago, an empty drawer will always be filled. Mm -hmm. So when you said if you weren't creating something, something bad was created, like would fill, you always fill a space. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And that's that's exactly it. What do you want to fill that space with? An empty drawer is never an empty drawer for long, as you know, it's always filled up with something. So whether that's good or bad depends on where your state of mind is and your experiences. That's a, that's, that's a nice quote. What's your favourite quote? Have you got have you got a, a a big one or the philosophy of your life? What's it, what? it, uh, well? There's a very strange one that I came up with when I was 18 years old. I used to study something called Jose Silva's mind control. And it was a process of dropping into alpha and creative visualization of things. And I did a lot of work. And as you know, I drew a map of this place 17 years before we got this house and, yeah. garden and found it when we moved up. It's like, what's this? That, is, uh, that aside, I've lost my train of thought. Quote. Like, so oh, quote. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. So in a meditation one day, this, this, this sentence came into my head and it simply said, all things, that, all things that have been and all things that will be are now. Mm -hmm. That was it. It was like a flash. Suddenly it just came. Realization. Right. So everything's now like I thought when I was a kid, like mm -hmm. I was taught. So nothing else matters because the future and the past don't exist. They're just concepts. Yeah. This is this is the only this is all we have is this moment in time. So what can you do with that time? So literally I try and fill every minute of the day. <laughs> yeah. You know. So um websites, where what's your where where can people go and have a look at your stuff? You're saying you're busy updating the Okay, so yeah, so we're gonna have a we'll have a new website up. It's, I'm sorry, but it's taking me a little bit of time to do for the six the English sixpenny company.co.uk. It's not up yet. Um it might be a few weeks. Uh but the main website is spmleathers.co.uk. 
okay that site is being updated like for instance all the belts that i've got on that are not on there at the moment because i'm taking pictures i'm making i'm taking pictures you know the process so it takes it takes a while to do we're also on facebook as spm leathers as well um we're on twitter i, I don't tend to use instagram so much um i should maybe i should do i get a little lost in the social media i mean you know you can lose a day just on social media when i'm wanting to be making this is why a lot of stuff I've made isn't on the website. Yeah. And people come in the say and say, I didn't know you do all this. <laughs> you, yeah. know, you can buy it now, you're here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So There is so much you do and um, hopefully this is going to get a bit more out there. So, um, yeah, if anybody's wanting any, I, I think the custom belts thing, like that, that, that's, a, that's a bargain for flipping 100 quid, man. It is. I'm gonna get some more more belts off you, and I want some want some uh, uh, key rings. Made. No problem, mate. Yes, no problem at all. I mean, it basically, if I, I like to say on the website, and I mean this as well. This isn't just a thing I've put out there. I will follow it up. If anybody's got an idea that they want something making, it doesn't matter how bizarre it is. If it can be made, I'll make it. Yeah, and that could be mixed media. It doesn't necessarily just need to be leather because I work with steel and TIG welding and, uh, you know, turning as well, the engineering side of it, small engineering. Uh, but for the leather work, basically, if somebody comes with an idea, I, I solve problems. Yeah. You know, I'll find, it, I'll, I'll find a solution to that. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's, the, it's those unique ones that, that aren't particularly you're able to get something for which is where this really and your your mind of, of solving them problems really excels so absolutely i mean i'll, I'll dream up new things like yourself you know you say you have a thousand ideas a day yeah you no know, it's which ones you have to start putting some to the one side and saying right this is a good idea perhaps leave this one for a bit so in the future there's a few things that i'd like to still talk to you about but we're well, the NLP for one, the hypnotherapy. Yeah, the, the, the NLP, and um, I'd really like to do an ep another episode of this, going into the NLP, the law of attraction, anxiety, stress, depression. Yeah. Um, because these are all things that are very relevant, and even more so now. So now that everybody's got to know Doug. And who Doug is, and 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 and, and what, what he does, and um, I think that although the NLP is something that you've stepped aside from to do more practical things, and to I know you were finding a lot of negative energy in in in, in you know was it sapping you a little bit? There's a reason for some reason you stopped doing the NLP. Yeah, I mean, we both decided, Jane and I both decided, because we, we worked together, we were the only couple in the UK that actually worked, as you know, in in, trans, in hypnotherapy at the same time. Yes, we were working on different scripts. experience, from my point of view, it was bizarre. <laughs> I'll never forget it. <laughs> and because we did it from the house, it were a little bit remote, so customers were coming from Edinburgh, as you know, Carlisle, it was all over and it was a long way. So customers became few and far between and the price that was charged for that was not a good enough wage. Yeah. Now, we always had a slight problem. When you're a healer, you don't, it felt like you shouldn't ask for money. 
if you're a healer. So there is your time and I understand the process. But as a, as if you're a genuine healer, I didn't feel like, I used to often say to people, what can you afford to pay? Mm. And people's value on your time was quite small. Mm. What you'd actually, you know, for the work you'd do, say you'd change somebody's life. Um, it was quite small. So it didn't really make a lot of money and it was taking more and more time up. Now, you can't leave NLP and hypnotherapy once you know about it in the way mind thinks. It's in your day, it's in everyday life. And we do help people on request, yeah. uh, but we don't carry the insurance for it now. Yeah. Um, and we well, don't... let's see if we can do something online that can just give people... A, yeah, yeah, definitely, general. General overview of, yeah. of how the mind works, yeah. and how they can change their reality through changing what's going on in... in, in... Yeah, once you explain to somebody why they're compelled to do the things they do and how they can change that in at the speed of thought that takes no time, you give people a key and you see a light bulb go on yeah in that moment this is why i do what i do this is why i'm addicted this is what you know whatever it, this is why i've got these bad feelings why i'm depressed yeah showing show a new way um it's fascinating mate I, I could just do that honestly i could just do that for a living and i know i know you enjoy it because it really expands your uh mind into into a different level of thinking when you've got something in front of you you're thinking about it that's really observation but yes. when when you when you get into this sort of stuff it is pure thought and it's yeah. it's thought about thought so it's you know what i mean it couldn't get more more thinking you know so um i it's it's this place where you can exercise your brain to to, to whatever limits you you want to go to really isn't it for yeah. you and whoever you, you you're working with so absolutely oh, it's a fascinating process so yeah we'll definitely do that but for today thanks for th thanks for everything thanks for everything that you've done for me you're and everything that you've you've uh, shown today and, and and the stories that you've told because uh every single bit of it's been fascinating so what was that website again spmleathers.co.uk a nice easy one isn't it so absolutely um, right well thanks uh, to everybody for listening hope you've enjoyed uh, uh hearing doug's amazing stories and um yeah i hope it's inspired you to to maybe think about just doing something yourself you've all got a room you've all got somewhere where you can do something and create something and i think uh once you start, you can't stop. And I think Doug started <laughs> early and he, he, he just hasn't stopped. So thanks again, Doug. And uh, thanks to everybody for listening. And we'll see you all again. Or hear you all again. Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.